Hello, Never Sleepers. Thank you for tuning in to another great episode of Ross Never Sleeps. I'm your host, Alex Ross. My guest today is the storytelling comedian and live stand-up producer of the Hangover Cure comedy show, Prince Edward Island's Sean Hogan. Every summer Sunday, Sean is showcasing Canada's best stand-up talent on the back patio of the Cloak & Dagger, 394 College Street. But first, what's new at NeverSleepsNetwork.com? Every Tuesday, we have an all-new Vesta Friends sketch comedy podcast. This week's guests, Palcoholics. Be sure to check out the Vest's seventh anniversary show, August 10, at Comedy Bar, hosted by a favorite Toronto comedian, Ryan Belleville. Also featuring Todd Graham, Aisha Brown, and the Toronto sketch comedy supergroup, Oh Dat Dumb. That's a show you definitely do not want to miss. Wednesdays, be sure to check out Dopamite Comedy at the Underground Comedy Club with our host of The Potato Files, Jeff Paul. His latest Potato File features Nigel Williams of Toronto's experimental hip-hop group, The Pocket Dwellers. Check them out at Alora's Riverfest August 20th. Thursdays, we have another weekly installment of Talk in Wrestling with the hardworking Casey Corbin, his guest coming off his amazing Toronto Fringe Showcase. I saw it. I loved it. Co-host of Stop Podcasting Yourself, Vancouver's Graham Clark. Friday, check out the latest Speech Bubble comic book podcast with the owner of The Beguiling here in Toronto, Peter Bercamo, and his now ex-manager, Chris Butcher. Chris was nice enough to come on to Speech Bubble to discuss his exiting of The Beguiling and off to bigger and better things in Japan. Be sure to check out NeverSleepsNetwork.com for more great podcasts every week. And now, my interview with the hardest working comedian in the summer, PEI's Sean Hogan. I want to know how the show was last night. Last night was crazy. That was one of the hottest crowds I've seen in Toronto in a long time. And like even all the head, all the comics that were on the show, like the lineup was, the lineup was was just intense. It was just a killer comic, killer comic, killer comic, and then like I bet I think it was over twenty applause breaks that happened last night. That was just like the audience was just ready for it. It was crazy. It was packed. Like capacity on that patio is forty. Eight, I think, like, you know, bylaw legally. And I think we had, like, over 70 on that patio. How long do you think you've been doing the show for now? Uh, the show started 2013, so this is the fifth season. And how come now, more than ever, has this been known to be Toronto's kind of best yet secret show? It's been interesting because it's, it's kind of like a, a personal... It's kind of a personal journey because before, like when the show started, the, when the show originally started, um, I started it at, I tried to start it at seven because I just, in my mind, it was a 7 p.m. show. It was a Sunday show. So I wanted people to be able to get home for work the next day and stuff. Not realizing that there's enough uh, booze hounds in Toronto that they'll stay out late. Oh, yeah. But now, I, like, I'm completely open to admitting that it was more of a personal anxiety that. The show would always start late. It would always start closer to like 7.40, 7.45, and people were waiting around a long time. And now, this year, we just say seating at 7, show at 8. Show starts at 8. But the whole, that, that began because originally I would say 7, and I was too worked up 
to go on at seven, I'd have to like go for a walk in the park. I'd have to like try and cause I, I felt so much pressure. I was booking a great lineup, but I was just so nervous. I felt so much pressure in having to perform a new set in front of the same crowd in front of comics. I've never, you know, that I really respect. So that really bothered me. So I would push the show off as long as possible. I was like, I don't, I don't want to do this show yet. I need to, I, my, my new material isn't prepped. It's not prepped. And I was putting so much pressure on myself. I wasn't hosting. I didn't know how to host properly. And, uh, so the show kept getting pushed and then eventually, um, and I think that has led to this year. That's what kept it a hidden gem was because I only wanted to do so many shows throughout the season. So we'd do like 12, or we'd do 10. Like the first season we did 10, second season we did 14, third season we did 12. But now this season, the fifth season, we've done 13 shows already, and we still have all of August, all of September, and a bit of October too. So we're probably going to hit 20 shows easy, 22 shows this, this season. And you've been doing it strictly at the Cloak & Dagger? Only at the Cloak & Dagger. What's the address real quick? 394 College. And what is it about Cloak & Dagger? Like, I... But didn't really know it existed until I keep hearing about this Hangover Cure comedy show. Uh, the regulars there are amazing. They have this... The, the bar itself has a fan base where people just love being there. But when you see the looks on people's faces when they go out to the patio, and it's this it's this enclosed patio with this huge, massive wall of ivy. Uh, the back wall is covered in ivy. The apartment above the pub is covered in ivy. There's a plum tree that hangs over the stage and over the patio. And when I first came to Toronto, like I just it blew my mind that that this patio was there. It's just this hidden little gem. And uh, no show, you know, I got to know the owners and then anyway, I proposed the idea to do the show and no show had ever taken place on the patio um, in any way, no music, no nothing. And so the, the comedy show has been the only show that's ever happened on that back patio. So um, now it's turning into not so much of a hidden gem, which is great for the owner um, and great for my show. Um, but I, I kind of like hidden gems. <laughs> like I, I do really enjoy hidden gems. But uh yeah, it's a hole-in-the-wall pub, so not a lot of people... It's not like your typical bar that people are going to... That's Its name isn't out there all over the place, but when people go there and see the patio, they just they get addicted to it. You, and where did you come from before you started here in Toronto? Montreal before here. I was in Montreal for two and a half years. Before that, I started comedy in Calgary. Is that where you grew up? Uh, no, I'm from uh, Prince Edward Island. Really? Yeah. So, so how do you go from East Coast... To far west, uh, and then you kind of meet in the middle. Yeah, and not even you go to Montreal first. Yeah, oh, I've been all over the place. That doesn't include like I lived up north in isolation in Zama, Alberta. Which, all right, which people don't even know that that place exists. People in Alberta have never even heard of Zama. <laughs> How did you make it there? Roundabout way, I had a birthday party at my, in my third year university, which got me. It didn't get me evicted, but it made me choose to leave university forever. Uh, so I left it. I quit. And then I, uh, my mom told me, my mom and I have a great relationship and she loves me dearly. And I remember she said, like, she said, uh, you know, you do what you need to do, but you can't come home. If you come home, who knows what's going to happen? Like, you're, you might get lazy. You might get, like, you need to go and find yourself. You need to get out there. That's a smart mom. Yeah. So she wouldn't let me go to P. She's like, don't even come to PEI. Don't even come home. Because she knows what it's like. Like, PEI is, um, I'll always be an Islander. I'll always be from PEI, but 
you always have that. You're, you always be from there. Um, but I needed to do other things. And she knew that. So she's just like, go, go do something. Go find something. Pay off your student debt. Get it a debt. So I went, tried to get into the oil field, which is how I ended up being. I was a supervisor on this like 16-ton truck in the oil field and on the Northwest Territories border for two years in the middle of the woods in Zama City, Alberta. But from PEI, I'm, I'm sure you're thinking I'm going to make some good money out here uh, and then have enough money to make a decision of where I'm going next. And I'm sure you're not even considering comedy at that at that point yet. Mm-hmm. No, 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 never. I uh, <clears throat> Yeah, I went to... I ended up in Zama. I was making $95,000 by the time I was 22. Like that year I made, yeah, almost six figures. I spent 10000 on a car, probably 10000 on clothes, and then 70000 on double white Russians. <laughs> uh, <laughs> hey, we're going to get to that for sure. And, uh, and I was like, why am I getting fat? And then... Um, <laughs> Double I, white Russians, yeah, yeah. extra, uh, extra cream. cream. Um, so anyway, and then I, uh, I got sick of that after a while. I just knew I needed to get rid of that because I was just going down that path. I didn't want to be a rig pig for the rest of my life. So rig pig. Yeah, it was bad. With no training, right? Like you kind of uh, just no, say, no, I, you no. know, will you take me? And they say yes. Oh yeah, I was, I was the dumb quote unquote noof. Uh, for it didn't matter that I said I was from PEI. Right. They're just like any anywhere is east of Highway Two <laughs> in Alberta is a newfie. Yeah, well, so yeah, just a lot of hard work and worked my ass off to get uh higher and higher, and then uh, became supervisor, and then yeah, I quit, and then moved to Calgary because I have friends there, family, and then in a roundabout way, I took a seventy percent pay cut, and then somehow landed a job as a working with uh, autistic children at a private elementary school and then became an elementary school teacher for a year. Private. Private. Right. Yeah. I was the only person at that school that not only didn't have a teaching degree, but I didn't have a degree. Like even the secretary had had her teaching degree and I had nothing, but I was amazing with kids and uh, I was personable. So I just aced the... I was really good at interviews. If I can get an interview, I can get a job. Amazing. You're a performer, right? Yeah. That's, that's part of I didn't of realize it at the time. Okay. Oh, still. Okay. Yeah. So, no. So, then I got that job, and then eventually I do that for a bit, and then I start carpentry. I start painting on the side to make more money, and then after teaching, I realized I didn't want to be a teacher because of the politics with the other teachers, and then, and then I become a painter, and then during that process, painting a $16 million mansion in Calgary, I had my boss laughing one day and just like... I, I was stepping on the pedal like he was just dying laughing he couldn't stop couldn't stop couldn't stop and then he had to tell me like you need to stop you just stop telling the story and then uh he's the first one who said it he planted the bug he just said you need you should do stand-up and no one had ever told me that before and I didn't know you could just do it I didn't know you could like I thought you had to get uh scouted by someone I didn't know how it worked never been in a comedy club and then as soon as he said it I was like oh this is what I'm doing and the moment he said it I I called before I ever stepped on stage. I called my, my mom and told her, I was like, so I found what I'm doing. <laughs> I'm sure she's like thrilled to have that conversation, she was excited, but she was just, she promised, she was just like, can we make a promise that if by 30, it's hey, not going the way okay. that, you know, a very again, your Smart mom's mom. yeah. Like she's yeah. very well thought. So yeah, she, she, I made a promise that I would go back to university if, if things weren't going the way that they're, I thought that they would go by 30 and now I'm 33 
Is it going where you want it to go? No, <laughs> not at all. But that's the exciting thing about it. It's it's still going really well. But now I find myself becoming. I'm really good at the behind the scenes. I'm really good at producing. I'm really good at hosting off stage and getting better and better at hosting on stage. But it's kind of a longer road. Like I, I, I love performing. That's my. That's still my passion. But but I'm right now. My talent is in booking a show, creating a lineup, creating a flowing lineup, and the behind the scenes, the quality control. Like, I'm getting better and better at that, which is really uh, piquing my interest. It sounds like your mom has rubbed off on you more ways than you realize. You know, this logical thinking. It's like, okay, you know, I like comedy. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm good at it in a certain context. Mm-hmm. But I'm learning that my other skills, which not a lot of comedians have, because a lot of comedians are busy working on their craft, it's hard to put together a show. It's hard to put together a consistent show that people are going to regularly attend. And you get that. And I think that's why you've kind of put your eggs in the hangover comedy, hangover cure comedy show. You know, you have a real grasp at something here, so you might as well keep pushing it. And it seems like it's working for you. And I feel like when when a comedian puts together a good enough show, the comedy is still there. You're still involved. Mm -hmm. You get to have your set. Like, I mean, it sounds like you're doing it just to do your own set. Yeah. Well, it's that's the driving thing, too, because, like, now that we've developed a regular following, like, now it's... um, we have like a rotation of probably like 150, 200 different regulars of the show that, I mean, last night it was, it was the, the most we've ever had on that patio. It was, it was the closest thing to people sitting on each other's laps I've ever seen. And, uh, none of the comics could sit down. Like we were all like in the hallway and just keeping busy, squeezing together in the hallway to let people pass in and out as in, and it was just so packed. But, there was like probably 50 regulars that weren't there. So now that we've developed that following, it puts more and more pressure on me of realizing what group we have that night. So then what material I can do that'll work, what story I can touch on again or what story like, so it puts a lot of pressure on me, which as a performer, you couldn't ask for anything better. Like, you know, the opportunity to do a new 10, a new 15 or last night I did 20 of just this new story that happened to me on Saturday. So I get to like work this out and try to work the crowd up and then introduce, introduce a new young, young comic to try and kill the the top spot on the lineup. Because this is an outdoor back patio Mm -hmm. venue. With no amplification. No, yeah, there's no mics. Are you encouraging your comics to do more story-based material? No, not at all. Last night was the first time, actually, that I requested anything from a comic in terms of material or style or anything like that. And it was just because I was a huge fan of his. He was dropping in for a little guest spot, and uh, he's just got this bit that it just kills me it's so funny and it was the only time i've ever done that where i just asked him like can you just do me one favor can you like it's been a while since the fans of the show when he would do the show they would request him to do that bit and they would just be like just do it do it just do it and it's it's called like his daryl Orr is the comic and uh he has this bit where he uses his own name and uh and people would yell out, do Daryl, just do, do Daryl. He's like, but you know the bit, like, you know it. And there's like, just do it. Isn't that when you realize you've made it when yeah, Seinfeld or even Russell Peters, like you want to hear the material you want to hear. Yeah, Daryl's got some of the better, like some of my most memorable bits that, that I, I tell people when I'm traveling, I'll tell them. I told people his bit in London, England. I was just like, you got to hear this bit about this Canadian guy that you don't know about. And they're just like, that's funny. But your style 
is generally storytelling more than mine ever. Is, yeah, my, oh yeah, yeah. Mine is mine is all anecdotal. It's just long form, long form joke infused storytelling. I would say, which is perfect for that venue. Yeah, cause, oh, well, I mean, for me to do, I, I wouldn't be able to do a new fifteen minutes every week. Like that's you know times that by twenty. 22 shows and then i would just be bombing on my ass every sunday which would be a rough way to start the show so who who are some of your uh you know storytelling comedy influences who that's interesting i don't even know if i've really thought about that um i mean someone that, that, that was good at weaving i don't i wouldn't call them a storyteller but um a lot well a lot of my influences would be back home on the east coast like i'm really influenced by my uncles i'm really influenced by because <laughs> they're lobster like i have one uncle who's a lobster fisherman who is one of the most attractive characters that you could ever he just draws people in and he's the type where he could tell he you know it, once he drinks a little bit and for him a little bit is probably like 40 beers and <laughs> You'll tell me, oh, he's like, he is a, he is a pure lobster fisherman, a pure PEI, Tignish PEI lobster fisherman. And he'll tell me a joke that I've heard him tell me eight times and I'm hooked. I'm listening to every word because he is just so naturally, like if you're on a boat with five guys and you're going to take their time by telling a joke, it better be a well-told joke. And he's always been like him, my uncle Roy, uh, all my uncles, all my uncles and my aunts, everybody, like they choose their words wisely and they can cut like a knife when they want to. And they're just, they're so funny and their timing is just so natural and so good. So that's been a, my, and my father too. My father, my father is a performer in a sense as well. And my mom, my mom's done like theater for a long time. Oh, really? Yeah. She's a nurse. She's a retired nurse, but she's done, she's been like the star of, of like community theater and she's amazing like and they'll do shows in front of like 800 people sometimes like at the high school like they'll pack the theater and she's one of the two main stars of this show and she's she embraces it like she goes out there and with no training whatsoever and she'll kill it she's like 68 years old i hear that in towns in provinces like pei no matter what if there's something happening people will go to it because yeah. not a lot is happening. If it's good, good news, good, like a good reputation travels really fast, uh, but it doesn't travel nearly as fast as a bad reputation. So if it's good, you'll get people coming out and it, eventually people will, but if it's bad, it's that, that word of mouth is going to travel real quick. Islanders love talking about <laughs> the, the bad the bad things. Are they like peeking out the window, being like, "Oh, what is Joan doing across the street?" Are they? That, is that the, is that a small town mentality? Is that like kind of what you remember uh, growing up? Well, I don't even know because I'm not, like I'm from a I'm from a dirt road that went to the small town, basically. Right. Like, well, not a dirt road. I grew up on a river, I guess, which sounds actually that sounds just as bad. Um, a stream, yeah, Mill River, Mill River, PEI, but it's uh, it's not like that too too bad but um word travels fast i mean for example in high school i was partying probably grade 11 and i was partying in charlottetown which is an hour and 20 minute drive and charlottetown is like the one of the only two cities on pei it had like it's the big city it's got fifty five thousand people if you can get over that but that is pretty big first pei for pei yeah and I remember I partied Saturday night, right? And doing like the usual high school thing, like smoking dope, drinking. And then the next 
morning, I get a drive back to where I'm from. I get home. By the time I got home. So we're talking like within 12 hours of me partying, I get home and mom and dad are in the living room. They're like, can you sit down? And then I sit down and it's like, so we heard that there, you might've been smoking some dope. It's like, how did you possibly, but someone saw someone and they told them at the gas station. And then that person saw Shirley at save easy grocery store. And then that person saw my aunt who saw, who called my dad. And then my dad told my mom, like it just boom, 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 boom. They love it. They love it. They got nothing better to do. Eh, It's like, that is what they have to do. What can you do? Who needs the internet? Who needs high speed internet? Like just, (laughs) that is your high speed internet. Yeah. So you go to PEI once in a while, say hello to the folks. I'm going there two weeks from today okay just for a nice vacay uh yeah i'll go there for 10 days and then um we're planning i'm doing a show there in november Great. actually yeah so you'll be back okay yeah so I'll be, I'll be back with uh rob Pugh and rob bebenick oh okay the the theater tour that they're doing yeah i think they're gonna we're gonna tag on three shows that's with great for that. yeah. yeah no uh, rob uh, told me about that um when uh jared campbell headlined uh yuck yucks oh yeah he told yeah, me yeah. about it. that's a great idea and actually the funny thing is when i said to you you know, if you put something out there and it's like you said, good, people mm-hmm. will go, right? Yeah. Because it's not a lot. Rob said that. Rob Pugh, he's like, you know, we're going to go to these places because if we go to a theater and do good comedy, they're yeah. going to come. They're oh, gonna, yeah, They're, yeah. they're going to fill Absolutely. that place up. Well, and that's the thing, too. Like, even seeing, like, Rob Pugh was on the show last night and he, he, he anchored the show. He closed the show. And he's he's one of those comics, like, he can just... Like uh, when you're when you're a, an up and coming comic, like you want to work so hard at having the ability to kill on stage. You want to just just rip it apart, right? And he's one of those guys that he can just choose when he wants to do that. Like he's put in the work. He's gotten to the point where he'll have fun. He'll take them to dark places. He'll take them down this road because he can easily at any point dig himself out of that hole. He can just be like, okay, and now I'm going to kill. Very smart. Yeah. He's a pro. Oh, yeah, yeah. No question about it. We saw him um, host, again, Jared Campbell's Yucks Mm -hmm. and uh, record taping, which uh, we did. We recorded. Oh, right on. Um, And he, my girlfriend, Trish, who you met, Mm -hmm. who's helping us outside, um, he's like, Rob was the best host that could possibly <laughs> host in that situation yeah. because he did such a good job warming up the crowd properly, yeah. getting them right where they needed to be for Jared. And then Jared had probably the best show of his life. Oh, because, that's and great. then and I, I think that has a lot to do with Oh so Rob. much to yeah. do with Rob. Yeah, yeah. Hosting is not easy. You said it yourself, you have a show and you're not even hosting. Yeah. There's a hosting is one of the most I shouldn't say underrated because the, the, the right producers out there know how important it is. Hosting's huge. Hosting. I mean, if you have a traditional show where you have a headliner and you have acts in between the host and the headliner, the host needs to be the second best, should be the second best performer on that show. Wow. They should be because they're the, they're the, the audience is riding on a train basically, right? They're on this and it could be like a fancy train. It could be a great train. They're having the time of their life. The host is the, the person who laid the tracks. The host is the person who built the train. The host is the person who built the bell on the train and no one realizes it, right? They're not going to get the same credit 
as the headliner. They're not going to like, I've, I've had people come up to me all the time. It happens. It happens to every host. They'll come up to you and say like, oh, like, do you do comedy after they just watched your show where you just hosted and then they'll come up and like, do you do comedy? Like they do comedy. Like, <laughs> do you, do you ever do that? And it's just like, and I, you, you just don't answer anymore. It's like, sometimes, yeah, sometimes I'll do stand up. But I mean, that's if they enjoyed the show, that, that that's all that matters. You want it to be seamless. But a good host makes it seamless. They make it. Um, and then, but you'll notice a bad host. Like there's a bad host. There's a good way to introduce people. There's a bad way to introduce people. There's just people that do too much time in between comics or don't know when to do time or, and yeah, yeah. when you see a good host, it just, the show is that much tighter and there's flow to it. And it's just, and, and it ends on time. There's like, there's certain clubs in the country where literally, I mean, you have a clock on the stage and you're the only one that can see it and they want you you know, they'll be like, you You need to do 12 minutes here. And then in between this act, depending on how much they do, you might do seven minutes, you might do nine, or you might do 11. But And then the headliner needs to be on at 9.30, not 9.29, 9.30. And so you need to be doing all this math and running on the fly while I'm just playing around. Like, this is the best job in the world, and I need to be very good. But you need to be running through all that time. Whereas every other comic just needs to worry about their 10 minutes. Or they just need to worry about their 15, whatever their set is. But like a host has a lot going on in the brain and they need to, need, need to make it seem like it's just all day, a walk in the park kind of thing. Like it's, it's a really crucial role to a show. Have you tur- toured all over Canada? Are you at that point now where you're doing uh, regular I mean, tours? independently toured. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's toured, the only way yeah. to do it. I mean, other than Yuck Yucks and maybe Absolute, yeah. what else are you going to do? Yeah, like right now I do the Absolute run. I'll do the Absolute comedy run, Kingston, Ottawa, Toronto once a year, every seven, eight months. And now I'm, I'm hosting those a lot. Cause I really, I, I like hosting. I just, um, this past winter I did my own little run where I, uh, me and another comic, Marito Lopez, who's had a really great year as well. He, um, we borrowed my parents' car. I drove it from PEI to Toronto in one day, picked Marito up, drove here to Thunder Bay day two, Thunder Bay to Regina, Regina to Calgary, and then Calgary to Williams Lake, BC. And then all up and down BC doing a run there. And then back to Calgary, Regina, Calgary, Grand Prairie, Edmonton, Grand Prairie, Edmonton, Calgary, Regina, Thunder Bay, Winnipeg, Thunder Bay, Toronto, PEI. Oh, he smoked. <laughs> and this is all with Marito? No, no, no. Marito was just, he just drove with me from Toronto to Calgary. Yeah, because that's where he's from. And Marito does not drive. I, no, dro- I drove the of whole. Of course not. So it was like 20,000 kilometers in a little over a month. But I love that sense of pride we get when we do so. Like, I love driving to Nashville oh, yeah, it's, in 12 hours. And it. that's my biggest thing. It's like I, I did it in one shot, didn't stop to pee. Oh, if I drive to PEI, I'm doing it in one, in one go. Good that, for you. That's like 18 hours. Speaking of Marito, who's been on this show and, and who is having a good career, you guys have a lot in common. We talked with Marito on, mm-hmm. on a past episode about his, you know, troubles with addiction. Yeah, yeah. And you've had similar issues. Yeah. Oh, Marito and I have a, t- I have a ton of things in common. Marito and I, Marito started one month after I started comedy at the same show in Calgary. We started on the same mic and... Yeah, we showed up together. So we started in Calgary together and then eventually our paths lead to Toronto together. 
and then eventually we start going through a lot of the same stuff uh yeah i know marito's been sober off of alcohol for he doesn't really smoke or anything but for alcohol he had his own issues and he's been sober for like two years or almost two years and then i'm approaching i don't know a year and a half year and a half with no no alcohol no drugs or no no weed or i had to quit alcohol to quit marijuana i had to quit marijuana to quit alcohol sure so i just said screw it and Addiction is addiction. Yeah. So the last time I last time I smoked or drank was actually with Jared Campbell and K. Trevor Wilson <laughs> in a limo. We're name dropping like crazy, and Jared keeps yeah. popping up. Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, if you're talking about booze and <laughs> booze and drugs, Jared's gonna pop up. Listen, if your if your last time is with anybody, you nailed it. Oh, you did yeah. it with the right hey, people. Come on, I'm in a limo. <laughs> uh, yeah, that was. I did a show with them, and I just got drunk. Yeah, and that was last, yeah, April. It was April April 29th, I think, or something like that. Cold turkey? Yeah, it's just been cold turkey. Any meetings or anything like that? Uh, just a therapist. I saw a therapist like once every week and a half, two weeks for the first seven months. And now he just kind of, I don't know, maybe I depressed him or something. I don't know. <laughs> I haven't really seen him for four months and he's canceled the last two times so uh if you're out there return my calls please because uh, i would like to see you again but i don't know maybe he's gone through his own things but I'm, everything's going great that's great you seem happy you seem healthy it seems like your you know your show's doing well all these things kind of interlace you know one way or the, the other sh- that, that's not a coincidence that this year for the first time ever i'm comfortable put not only putting in the work but allowing the hangover show to for the first time ever not be the hidden gem that it's been right and now it's really starting it's picked up more traction than ever before that's just not a coincidence that it coincides with me being completely clear-headed and sober right i mean clear-headedness is just as important as enjoying your vices to Mm -hmm. a certain degree you have to have both or you lose touch you know i find personally i always say better to if you're on the fence about going out to get wasted you know enjoy being on the fence and then maybe don't go you know i I always feel like if you're on the fence you're probably not into it and you want to be social or be social and you know order a water or a diet coke i mean listen i've never had addiction so it's it's hard for me to understand really what it's like that's why i want to talk to you more about you know what was rock bottom like or if if rock bottom was just like i need to stop this how do you you know is it hard work and then pushing your goals in in life like Comedy is that ultimately and therapy of which is I, I love therapy. I love when I hear, you know, whether you're going to meetings or therapy, whatever your thing is. And, and it's easy for me to say anything because I've never been in those shoes. But for you, is it is it because the success that's come from the clear headedness? You're like, well, obviously, this is what I have to do. Yeah, I would say it's a mix of, of, of those of what you just said, basically, because it's immediately following what I knew was a game changing decision. Like I, I knew, I mean, I've tried to quit before I tried to quit cigarettes before when I smoked, I tried to quit weed before when I smoked and I tried to quit booze numerous times and it was all white knuckle quitting. And I, and I was just, I wasn't seeing a therapist. I wasn't, especially cause there's, I mean, there's a lot of stigmatism when it comes to therapy, especially on, I wouldn't say so much the East coast as I would say, I mean, any small town, but specifically PEI, there like when and how i grew up if you said i was seeing a therapist someone would automatically picture you in a mental institution like immediately it's like you know what doctor are you seeing old school mentality oh yeah and it's just it's a very traditional 
mentality when it comes to that stuff. So, so being in, in a big city and me, like that was a big hurdle in itself. And then when I committed to it and made the phone call and saw a therapist, I was just like, okay, now I feel like I have some power in my hands. Now I'm taking control. Now I'm, I mean, within two, three months of that, all of a sudden, like I started, you know, next thing you know, I, I advanced to the finals of these three different competitions that were like big, you know, I had the potential of winning $15,000 through these three competitions. And there, and two of them are big shows there. You know, one of them was, was in Brantford in front of, I think like 1200 people. And it was my first big theater show. And I would not have been there. I don't think if I would have been drinking or if I would have been smoking, cause I, I wouldn't have been willing to put myself out there like that. And I really worked on the material that I was doing at the time. And that's what got me into the, and I was meditating before sets and I was just, things were flowing for the first time. They were actually flowing and it almost like a sustainable flow. Cause I just, I felt different and I just, I felt more, I was building momentum. I was building this ball of, of momentum. And so once I started feeling that I was just like, Oh, well, this is what happens. This is what happens when you actually put the work in. This is what happens when you aren't just relying on, you know, skills that you already had, you're actually putting in work to develop those skills. You're actually putting in work to write the emails and do the behind the scenes you're doing, you know? And so once that momentum started to build, it just gave me more confidence and then gave me more. It's like, I, I, well now, now I do, I didn't just luck out to get that opportunity. I put the work in for it. And, you know, same thing with the show. Like, it's not, I'm not lucky that the show is succeeding this year. Like, I've put the work into it. And I think I never would have gotten to that point without the clear-headedness that I think some other people have or some other people. I mean, everybody goes through their through their troubles to find that. But I, I just had a long road with alcohol where eventually I always knew that I was going to have to quit someday. I always knew that. Like even when you were working in Alberta? Oh yeah. God, yeah. I mean, I woke, uh, like the amount of times I've woken up, like I woke up, I woke up in a bed once in Alberta, in Zama City, Alberta. I looked down and my feet are both covered in mud. And my manager wakes me up and says, we need to get on a helicopter right now. And this isn't a dream. This is like, I was like, why are my feet muddy? He's like, I don't know. We'll figure it out in the chopper. (laughs) (laughs) It was like, so now I got to figure out why my feet are muddy in a chopper. And so now I'm in a helicopter for my first time ever flying out to a swamp in the Northwest Territories. My feet are muddy and I'm, I didn't find out for three days why my feet were muddy, but it it was because I had like a million double white Russians at the bar. We're getting on this helicopter at 5 a.m. And we're drinking at the bar till 3.30 in the morning. I had an hour of sleep and loaded. And uh, on when that night I had a pair of shoes that I decided it was too muddy to get my shoes dirty. So I walked home barefoot in the mud and then just passed out in the bed and then got on a helicopter in the morning. Like things like that. I have so many of those things where like, you know, waking up, riding a bicycle in Montreal. That was a huge surprise. Oh, I've heard that you tell that story yeah, before. Yeah, that kind That's of a stuff. Big one. Yeah, and like those kinds of things, and then that led to a big accident and it messed my face up. And I was lucky to get out of that without permanent damage. And then like you take all of these little stories that just keep adding up. And then I would have certain people in my life be like, "Well, it's just drunken stories." Like, but how many of these do I have to go through? Or when is the big one going to happen where I actually hurt myself or I hurt someone? Or 
And then it's just like all these little things like that that just kept adding up. And I was like, I'm just kind of tired of this. Like, I'm tired of waking up wondering if I disappointed someone or if I disappointed myself or the shame involved with it and tied to it. And I just got tired of it. And I was just, I just need to, I need to break. I need a break from it. Do you generally go things all in or nothing? Yo, yeah. I'm manic. I'm super manic. When it comes to cleaning, I'll go like two months without cleaning. And then if I clean, then I just go hard at it. Like, and then same thing with writing, same thing with sports, with, uh, I was about to say foosball, which is true. (laughs) That was one of the reasons why I dropped out of university because I studied foosball. I got high and I studied. I became the best foosball player at the university. <laughs> Are you a spinner or, or, or the non the, no, no, not, spinning, no spins, right? but no spins. <laughs> but like I got so good at it because I became just obsessed with it until I had to be the best at it. Isn't that amazing though? Your brain is telling you, hey, focus on something mm-hmm. and we'll kill it. Like, don't you get that eventually? Because now that you're clear-headed and you're using your powers for good. <laughs> that just sounds funny. <laughs> but it's true, right? Like, instead of, like, having moments of, like, not knowing why you're somewhere because you're such a good drinker, you and know. I was a very good drinker. Well, it sounds like you're good at whatever you put your mind to. Well, I'd like to be. I think, like, because the people that know me really well back home, when it comes to, like, sports or... Like with hand-eye coordination too, like that kind of stuff I was always really good at. And my friends knew that if I really practiced something, I'd get really good at it. But I never got to the next level of something. I would never, you know, like I I always had a lot of potential in everything I did. And I was just like, man, it'd be nice to, to actually see through something, like to actually see it through and, and, and try to achieve something. Uh, it'd be nice. It looks like you're doing that. And yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm classic. I'm one of those people that's just, it's never, you know, it's never good enough and I need it to be. So I still think, you know, I'm still scared shitless of being a complete failure. Um, but that's what drives every comic. It's I part think. of the craft. It's a part of the craft. But, uh, but I, yeah, I don't think that I would be able to, to see something through like that and to give it the work that it deserves and the attention it deserves to actually achieve what I'm, what I'm thinking anyway, unless I was completely sober. Some people can do it and still have a relationship with alcohol and with, with drugs, whatever it is, and walk away from it and take breaks from it. But I'm all or nothing. And that includes alcohol and isn't it funny, though? You're a storyteller. I mean, you have all these amazing tales. And now more than ever, this kind of long form of comedy has become mm-hmm. more popular. People are doing, like, specific storytelling shows. I mean, The Moth has always been really popular. Yeah, there's some great ones in Toronto, too. Yeah, Rack yeah. on Tours, storytelling. Yeah, yeah, I've done that a bunch. Exactly. Yeah. So, there's there's opportunity, especially for comedians. Mm-hmm. But, again, comedians or storytellers in, in your situation that have you know, abused, you know, had addictions. Mm -hmm. Part of that is what I, do you ever think to yourself, well, maybe I wouldn't have half the stories. Oh yeah. All the time. Is that a problem? Do you ever think that like, I, yeah, I wouldn't have all these stories, but maybe it's a problem. I have these or like, do you ever like really question the grand scheme of it all? Or like, do you just, you said yourself, you know, I feel really fortunate that it never got too crazy. Mm -hmm. So do you feel like part of the party and the fueled addiction, you know, kind of took you to this place that you are now? Oh, absolutely. Like, I I don't regret any of it. Okay. And sometimes I'll get worried. I'll I'll get worried that like, I'm gonna, now that I don't do those, I'm not in those situations that I used to find myself in that I used to, and I get worried sometimes. I'm just like, well, what if I'm just a boring, sober person and I'm not gonna, 
I'm not going to find these stories anymore. I think but that's part of the addiction. I think so too. Yeah, and that's that's a justification of the addiction. Yeah, that's a yeah. ju- but then, for example, like I just had something happen on on Saturday, hosting a not even hosting. We were just performing at a outdoor venue in Brantford, and it was like it was Soul Asylum, Tonic, Collective Soul, Our Lady Peace. The na- the title of the festival may as well have been like bands that we can now afford, and it was just a weird festival that I was somehow involved in, and all of these events took place that I didn't put myself into these positions, but they just happened to me and the other comic around us completely, and we're just like, what is going on here? And it just... it. I told someone, oh, I talked about it last night on stage, and it was just a new 15 minutes of material that literally was just placed into my hand. It was just it was just put there. And it has nothing to do with alcohol. It has nothing to do with, with weed. It just happened. I was just like, yeah, things, are, things will always just happen. You just need to have your eyes open to it. And a good sto- storyteller knows how to put that storytelling yeah, twist. Yeah, you add your color to it. You add right. your flair to it. You add your... Because that's the thing, like, the the other comic I was with, like, you know, he would tell the story and I would tell the story and we would ju- we had a completely different take on it. And that has nothing... And he's sober, too. He's been sober for three years. Has nothing to do with, with the mindset in terms of whether it's a sober mindset or not. It's just It's just how you internalize things. It's how you're interpreting them. And it's... And it's, I mean, if you're, if you're meant to tell the story, it's going to come out the way that, you know, with your color. So I've just learned to embrace that a little bit. And honestly, I don't, I think I'm just getting better, better on stage as a storyteller than I ever would have if I would have kept drinking. Do you write down your stories? I haven't been lately, which is different because I used to, when I smoked weed, I used to think that I had to write I was writing a blog that it was actually a lot of people back home were reading a lot. And I, I think I need to go back into that because I enjoyed it. I enjoy writing and I have, I think I have a good eye for it. My father's a good writer. He's an, a retired English teacher and he's like a, such a good red penning, he's such a good editor. So I really, I love writing, but in the last year I haven't been writing as much, but I, and I haven't been putting as much pressure because if I do that, it adds too much structure. And then when I get on stage, if I miss a beat that I wanted to say, then that'll kind of take the story. It'll take my confidence out of the story. But if I just go up there and then actually just tell the story, because you don't practice a story before you tell your buddy, most people don't. Or when you tell a group of friends and you just roll into a, a bar and you say, you got this just happened on the subway and you tell that you haven't rehearsed it in the moments walking up to the bar. So just learning to be in that moment, that's been the challenge is really, really tying into that. Do you have plans for these stories eventually? You mean like in terms of a show or in terms of recording or in you terms know, of fringe is basically, you know, ripe for the picking for this yeah. kind of stuff or, you know podcasts, blogs, like you said, like, I just feel like, you know, the hardest part of being a comedian is content, Mm -hmm. good content. And sometimes when you put the storytelling twist in it and you're good at telling the story, you get a lot more leeway than having to be funny all the time. Mm -hmm. You know, you can take it to a non-funny place and people are more appreciative. I mean, there's, there's always a market for whatever your your art form is going to be as long as it's good. But I feel like storytelling and comedy they're very popular right now Mm -hmm. you know and i think there's just so much more opportunity in the live sense oh yeah absolutely uh fringe definitely i'd like to get involved in um 
I think you'd be great for that. Yeah, I think so. And there's a couple of, and that's one thing actually that I wouldn't, that I've never gotten into. I've never worked with a director. Or I've never worked with someone that has had a, a direct say in, in what I'm doing, which I think would benefit me greatly in terms of uh, the structure of the show and the, and just that kind of brainstorming. But I would like to start working on that actually. Cause I did, especially back home when I go back home, it's just such a support system that's back there that I would easily be able to put together a one hour show, an hour and 10 minute show and run it home and get the support. People would come out to it. Um, and I've done that before. I've done a one man show back home where there's, it's a fringe style show because there's no opener. There's no nothing. It's just a cold open me on stage for, it was a two hour show, but wow. it, it was silly. Uh, it was two hours and it was clean. There's no, it was, it was weird. Well, they, they want it. It was great. They it was fun. The, it was the one entertainment. Of, yeah, it was, it, it was, I wanted it to be an hour and 40 minutes long and it ended up I, I think the first night I went over and I did two hours and 15 minutes holy <laughs> with no intermission you're a storyteller that's that's, that's great I wanted to actually bug you and put you on the spot a little and maybe you know give us a story that you're either working on or, or that you've polished and, and you'd like to share with us and we'll, we can kind of close out with a good story oh god what would I tell I don't know I've never even... I, no one's ever put me on the spot like that before, Mr. Ross. <laughs> we well, do things a little different around here. I guess so. You do. I got a... Uh, oh, my God. Well, I, I need direct... I need a, I need a nudge. I what need a what nudge. happened on Saturday? Okay. There's a nudge. Uh, Saturday was... Uh, well, okay. Clifford Myers. I, I need to mention his name because it's going to come up. Uh, he's a comic from Hamilton. And he calls me up Thursday morning. I woke up. I may as well be candid. I woke up in bed with a Guatemalan opera singer. And uh, Cliff, <laughs> that's another story. Uh, we just cuddled. It was great. Mom, don't listen. So uh, we, we woke up and I got a phone call from Clifford that just said, uh, hey, I, I have a gig. You need to do it with me. There's no choice. It doesn't pay much. Like, well, with those you know, I need to do it now. Right. Um, but he said, I need you to do it with me. We're going to perform outdoor festival, 15 minutes in between acts, three separate times, starting at two in the afternoon, because nothing screams comedy, like an outdoor <laughs> music festival, uh, and you know, middle-aged white rockers. Right. You said like our lady peace and our lady stuff. peace tonic. Soul Asylum, Collective Soul, oh, and then four different bands that I've never heard of. They got a lot of soul. A lot of soul. Uh, and yeah, they were, they all had their time. They all had their time to shine. And so I show up there and we get there and it is right from the get go. There's so much security, security everywhere. And I didn't know why at first. And then it started to make sense the more I saw that the more I got to know what Branford people are like, because they were, I was just like, Oh, if these people are this drunk at two, they're going to need this security by 10 tonight. Like it's just so more security. I've been, I was at Woodstock 99 and there was more security at Branford oh, wow. for 3000 people than there were for 250,000 at Woodstock 99. So we get there, we get our, our all access VIP, you know, bracelets. We start walking around and uh, they give us these shirts. They say, yeah, you got to wear these shirts. These, uh, it was called what the fest is what this thing was called. And we start walking around and right away we find out that our, that our, we're not going up 
no one knows what we're doing. We're asking everybody. Oh, that sucks. We're, we're just like, when do we go on? What do you want from us? How much time? Everyone's saying, we know nothing. We don't know how much time you're doing. We don't know when you're going on. We don't know what bands you're performing after. We don't know Classic. anything. It's like, okay, cool. They said, just hang out back on this couch behind the behind the stage. So, whatever. We're at a show. It's free. So, we're hanging out and uh, we're listening to... I don't know a, another band that I I've never really listened to, and at one point, uh, one of the main organizers, he's like he, <laughs> the main the guy that put this whole show on, his name is Jamie, who I will reference in a bit. He's put this whole thing together. There's a bunch of money involved because even though these bands are, there's you still got to pay good money. Like this is their living. Collective Soul still tours and still. I mean, their tour bus alone looked, you got to pay the money. So there's a lot of money sunk into this thing. And the security alone looked like it cost $800 million. <laughs> and we're standing there. And then all of a sudden, this organizer comes over. And he's like, hey, do you guys want to meet Soul Asylum? And we're like, I don't know. Maybe. And he and I looked at Clifford. And Clifford's like, I, 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 I couldn't say anything and then the guy says it's air conditioned we're like sure <laughs> so <laughs> we took the air conditioning i don't know soul so he takes us to uh the, the the like the basically the the pretty swanky vip lounge which is an elementary school so there's like an uh, they, they, that's where they have all of these <laughs> All of these rockers that are probably uh, thinking of how popular they used to be and how, like, because now they're in an elementary school in a classroom, that's their dressing room, and they're all sitting around, and we go in there, and we're standing there, and we walk up to this desk, and he brings us up to this woman that's working the desk, and he says, hey, Rebecca, these are the uh, the two super fans that won the <laughs> Soul Asylum meet and greet. Oh, now we're funny. super fans. She's like, oh, we already have two names down for that. He's like, oh, no, no, no just mark them off. Uh, and Clifford and I are looking at each other like, what? man, those are probably actual fans of Soul Asylum. Like, I don't even know who these people are. And he's like, no, don't worry about it, don't worry about it. And uh, he puts our names down, and then he's like, okay, I got to go. And he just walks away. So now we're standing there, and I'm watching an interview happen with, with someone I'm assuming is a member of Soul Asylum. I don't know. Um, not only that, but Clifford looks at me, he's like, dude, this isn't even air-conditioned. <laughs> And we're just standing in a hallway. He's just like, there's barely any shade here. And Clifford's like a 360-pound man. Oh. He's a big dude. Uh, he's dropped a bunch of weight, but he's still okay. pretty heavy. Sure. He's just like, and he looks at me. He's like, do you really want to meet? So do you care? I was like, I don't care. And like, what are we going to talk about? And he just says, you want to go? He's like, I got to find Jamie, the organizer, to find out what we're doing, right? So he's like, let's go. And we start walking down the hallway. And uh, so we're booking it down the hallway to the main artist's lounge, which we got water from earlier. And as we, we walk in there, Clifford sees Jamie go walk in the main office. So he starts walking over to him to get some info. I walk directly to the buffet because what else am I going to do? And I'm curious. And I'm not dainty either. So I walk over to the buffet and immediately like I pick up the tray that says meat on it. It just says meat on the top of it and i pick up this metal lid and underneath was a representation of i think the stat the current status of these bands because all oh. that, all that was in there is five 
five Ziploc containers that have different kinds of sandwich meat. Oh, man. <laughs> There's turkey, chicken, and one of them had bologna in it. And I was like, what is it? This is not a good craft service table. While I'm picking that up, though, I hear from the back that woman that was at the front desk just yell out, so you guys can't be in here and yells yells at us. And we turn around and Clifford just looks at her. He's like, listen, lady, we're performers on the show. We're allowed to be back here. And she yells in front of everyone, all these musicians. She just yells out. She's like, you're not performers. You're super fans of Soul Asylum. <laughs> and we all look at her and we're just like, I'm, I'm sorry to say this, but we're not even fans of Soul Asylum. She's like, you're telling me you didn't win the contest? And Clifford's like, I don't know what to tell you, lady. I'm about to meet. I need to talk to Jamie. And he just turns around and she storms off so angry, thinking that we're lying to her and that we're and she goes to find someone. So Jamie, the organizer, grabs us and says, "Okay, let's go. I I, got to talk to you and I got stuff to do. Takes us down another corridor. And as we're going down that corridor, there's a. Uh, an adjacent one and we I look down that and I see Rebecca the security guard and she sees us and she thinks that we're running away the look on her face is just like they're getting away and I don't know I'm just like whatever we go outside with the organizer and as we get outside this huge blonde haired dude with uh, like a heavy metal he had rings on all of his fingers and he looked like he thought he was really important he comes kind of rushing over to Jamie, the head organizer of this whole event, and he just goes, hey, Jamie, I just want to say to you, and we later find out this is the manager for Soul Asylum. Comes running up to Jamie, and he just says, I just want to let you know, I just got word that uh, there's some Soul Asylum potential stalkers that just snuck on to the grounds of the festival, and one of them just got caught trying to do something to the food. Uh, he, another one was like looking at the instruments and going into the office, and I'm just letting you know, like the security needs to be beefed up here because I can't have my guys being terrorized like this. And Jamie's just like, I don't got time for this, man. We'll figure it out. I'll step up security. And we start walking. Cliff and I look at each other. And like, that was us. Yeah. Obviously, that was us. And now we don't know what to do. So now word is going around because we didn't realize that we were wearing the What the Fest t-shirts. So we just looked like super fans. Right. We didn't look like performers. The rest of the show is happening. And there's a fight between a promoter and a musician. The cops are involved. And it's just mayhem the entire time. And then luckily, at one point, I'm sitting on the couch, and we're behind the stage, and I'm about to go on, and I was like, man, this has been a crazy day, and there's a musician sitting beside me, and I don't know who this guy is, and he's just like, yeah, man, it's been pretty insane. And I'm about to go on stage, and I was like, anyway, man, it, you know, it was nice to meet you, or whatever, I don't know, and... It's like, who are, what band do you play with? He's like, oh, I'm the lead singer for Soul Asylum. I was like, oh, <laughs> right on. And little did he know that his stalker was shaking yeah, his right. hand. But I bet you that was the first time that Soul Asylum, like in a long time, has had a stalker. I bet you I did, hey. like, buddy. I bet you, like, since, like, the mid-90s, that's the first time. I hope word got back to Soul Asylum that there was two stalkers. A 360-pound bearded <laughs> man and a 200-pound bearded man. They'll take it. I bet you, man. And it just, like... That just laid itself out, and the whole time Cliff and I were just shaking our heads, just being like, this is, what are the odds? What are the odds that all this is going down? And it was just, and it just, I I mean, I got paid a little bit, and it was nice, but I was just like, this is going to be fun to talk about tomorrow night. The material comes from these situations. You don't need booze. You don't need weed. You just need oh, members need of Soul of Asylum. And, no, and, and your eyes just need to be open to it, and then things just kind of happen for you. And then uh, and then you live your dream, and you meet the lead singer for Soul Asylum. 
and then you don't give a shit. <laughs> well, I think that's the key. He was really sweet, though. Hey. He was really sweet, and I don't mean any disrespect. Of course not, and, and I think that's uh, the great part about being a comedian first and then a storyteller second. You, no one's really going to take you too seriously in a good way. You know, ultimately, you're, you're there to entertain with your stories and add your color. So where can people hear more of these great stories? I'm a fan of the storytelling comedy genre. Cloak and Dagger, yeah. Sunday nights. Sunday nights, we got another show coming up. A- any Any Sunday that's not... A downpour rain like even we're at the point now where even if it's a drizzle rain people are still like we're still getting a packed crowd uh, people are bringing umbrellas so anyway there's a show this sunday uh we're taking one sunday off the in august but that's it um a other website than that, yeah a website hangovercurecomedy.com uh same as the facebook the instagram it's all hangover cure comedy and what's your socials? Um, my socials, uh, that's a good question. I barely even use them anymore. Really? Um, well, yeah, I'm just, I don't know. I'm self-conscious about like really shoving my, I mean, search Sean Hogan on Facebook and you'll find me or Shogun Comedy, S-H-O-G-A-N. I think you should do more social media for your show at I least know. for the Sundays because you're getting a lot of social media love. That yeah. You, that's where a lot of your, your buzz has been coming from. Yeah, we're growing. Like, I don't, I don't know how it works, um, but it seems to be working. The I, more you do. Yeah, it is. And it's, uh, people are like really, like even in the, even this season, like the Instagram account, account has gone up like 200, 200 followers in the last like two months. So it's, it's growing because like it's a very photogenic patio. It's, it's, it's really, it does look beautiful. Every shot. It's gorgeous. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the photographer's great that we have. It's, it's, it's me. Um, (laughs) it's, it's me and my iPhone, but, uh, I got a good eye and, um, yeah, no, I'm, I'm trying, I'm starting to push my own social media out there a little bit more, but I'm just focusing a lot on, I love pushing the show, you know? It's a struggle that I have with comedy, like my own personal brand. I'm it's just art. Like, it's art in general. I it's know, tough. but You're it's just artist. like, look at me, look at me. Yeah. But it's like, welcome to the club. Look at the show. It's look it, at the it's show. True. That's and and seriously, and I've always said that's why I do this. I do this to bring attention to the rest of the shows that we're producing. Yeah. You know, I'm like an opening act for a, a much better acts that are on our network. Do you find that weird though? Like how you had the same kind of mentality where I feel weird saying like, Hey, this is me. Come see me. But then if it's something that I'm producing where I can say like, Hey, this show, or we are going to put on a great show. I can put as much effort and I can pump that as much as I want. Are you the same way with this network in terms of you don't mind pumping this, but then when it's so personal, it's just like, look at Alex Ross. Yeah. You feel self-conscious. It's not about me. It's, it's never been about me. That's how I've always kind of... I'm always better at making other people look good. I'm never going to be able to make me look as good as I want, but I can... You know, also, nobody's really doing kind of like an oral history of what's currently happening in the mm-hmm. Toronto comedy and yeah. art scene in, here in Toronto. I feel like I'm... You know, if you go through our list of episodes, you'll see some of the main... Like, people that have been on your show. and Not even my show. That's the thing. I did this so Jeff Paul, Nick Beaton, you know, Casey yeah, Corbin yeah. can come in and be like, oh, some guy who's not a comedian can easily call up people or you know i mean you and i don't know each other so the first time you've ever formed me and we're talking like old friends yeah you know so i do it because you're doing it Mm -hmm. without you know hangover cure comedy without your drive to help make the comedy boom in toronto what it currently is i don't have a show 
Yeah, you know, this yeah. is not about me. But again, it, you know, it's like a chicken and egg kind of thing. But at the same time, I'm never going to look as good as I want you to look or sound or promote or produce. You know, that's, yeah. that's why I do this. The network is here because we feel that not a lot of people are doing, you know, like you said, you're a producer. I'm a producer. I'm a producer who also has a show. But just so I can show you how easy it is that if I can do it, you can do it. Yeah. And you're better than I am in the things that you do. So if I give you all the tools and I give you the studio, if I give you all these pieces, yeah, just walk away feeling good and feeling good about your art because it's so hard. You're an artist, yeah. you know? See, it's weird how I find it. I heard a line the other night. I think this goes to show how much I like producing and like doing the same thing, creating a platform for comics to come and shine on. And I find it funny because I heard a line the other day. There's a great... It was in Breaking Bad. There's like a gangster in Breaking Bad, and he says to the bartender, and this is meant as an insult. He, he wants another drink, and the guy kind of says, like, I don't know if you need another drink. And he slams his fist down, and he says, listen, in life, there's people who drink, and there's people who pour. You pour. That didn't sound like a bad thing to me. I was just like, <laughs> I like to pour. Like, yeah. I want to pour. I want to fill glasses. And I think he meant it as an insult. But I was like, that sounds like a producer. I'm a pour. We all I get like to, to pour. A, we all get to a point in our careers where, you know, you start on a path and then you realize what you're good at and you try to grasp what you like out of the industry and make it your own. Like, I always say, like, I don't want to do this to make bazillions of dollars. I want to do this as a job that I can make a living. You know, I want to produce the talent as a like I'm yeah I would love any of my guys and girls to to step up and make it one day and I'm giving them the ability to try yeah. the, the attempt but in the end of the day I think you know it's a Canadian media thing in general you know I would just be as satisfied with making the the, the millions as I would be making $40,000 a year yeah. doing this because people like you who are working so hard to do what you're doing deserve the credit deserve the living wage deserve all this i'm just here to kind of help you know put your make your spotlight bigger and I, and again yeah sure i would love if i was an interviewer and i can do it only because i enjoy talking to you so much anybody that comes on here i'm selfishly cheating the system and getting some big canadian stars in here and tricking them into talking to me I mean, intimately I, I, for an hour yeah i feel the same way with my show it's like i stacked the show like last night i was just like I feel like I'm cheating sometimes because I'm just like, oh, I'm just going to stack the show with comedians that I feel nervous in front of, which is what makes you better. Absolutely. And it's, uh, but yeah, every once in a while, I'm just like, eh, I feel like this is cheating, but my God, it's great. At least w it, it, when, you, when you're winning and it feels like you're cheating, but you're not, that's the best kind of win. I think, yeah, I think so. Because yeah, it's just like I get to study great comics on a patio and... I just get to watch. And I get to have people like you come here and really tell the truth about why what you're doing that is great is so great. And I really appreciate you coming on today. Oh, thanks for having me, man. It was fun. It was a lot of fun. Awesome. I always ask as a last question in now this new season of the show. Mm -hmm. So the show you're on is Ross Never Sleeps yep. on Never Sleeps Network. What's your relationship with sleeping, uh, other than when you have Guatemalan opera singers next to you. <laughs> I don't know why I mentioned that. I was literally <laughs> thinking that 60 seconds ago. I, was, I shouldn't have mentioned the Guatemalan opera singer. It's uh, my only regret. Maybe we'll edit this out. We, we won't. Um, <laughs> Already gone. <laughs> it's, yeah, okay. Uh, my relationship with sleep, lately, it's been 
the for the amount that I'm getting, it's good. Okay, but I've been for some reason. I watched Better Call Saul and I got caught up on it. And then so that, fucking good. Oh, and then once I got caught up on it, I was like, I I kind of want to watch Breaking Bad all over oh, again. No. And now I'm on season four. Oh wow! All over again. I just can't stop. So I've been I've been running on like four or five hours. Last night, like today, I'm on five five Oof. hours sleep, which is not good for me. And um, just like a classic Canadian comic, I sleep deep though. Oh, you do? I do. Oh yeah, yeah. When I'm out, I'm out. But you have a day job, you know. You're rocking the the, the, house, the painting, yeah, high high end house painting you for know? for the rich of Toronto. You got to do both until one works, you know. Yeah, well, I, I'm to go back to like being good with my hands. Like I've I've, I've got I. I've become a really good painter and a really good... Uh, Again, you could do anything, I'm sure, well, if I'm you just, put I've, your mind I've to it. I've learned to embrace it, though, because like, especially, you know, when you're when you're trying to work so hard at being a comic and uh, and it's not happening the way that you think, you, you kind of unleash on other things. And then, you know, in the past, I would be on a job site where I'm just like this, I'm covered in dust and I'm just tired exhausted and i'm just like i'm gonna do this forever i'm just gonna be covered in dust i'm gonna be a 65 year old painter and i'm gonna be one day i'm gonna be painting one of my old buddies houses that i used to do stand up with Hmm. and that's like a nightmare to me um is to one day like ring a nice doorbell and like you know my buddy that i started with or something just answers the door marito i, I just pictured door. marito in a bathrobe <laughs> with a cigar of course it's marito just, oh yeah he's with just a like cigar. hombre what's up <laughs> hermano how you doing and like he throws me a golden cigar he's just oh, like uh, okay smoke that when you're not working let's paint my house <laughs> that's what i picture as a nightmare oh. uh not marito because i love him so much but yeah, it's but I've learned to embrace that. It's just like, well, if you're going to... Right now, you paint, and that fuels financially your other stuff, so let's be the best painter you can be. Let's let's use it. Let's And I've been enjoying work lately. Like, I've been enjoying painting, and... Yeah, it's changed. I don't know. It's changed things. I feel like it's it's moving. It's moving in the right right way. It's in the same realm of the same kind of hard work it takes any artist to get their craft where to the point where it has to be. You know, this is part of the motivation, but this is also part of just the hard work mentality you need. You know, if you don't have something during the day sometimes to occupy your time, you literally do nothing. Mm-hmm. You maybe do some sets. You maybe do some writing. But I feel like a it's good to have extra money in the pocket and security and mm-hmm. and all that stuff. But I feel like it's it's necessary uh, for any artist, you know, like how many people in bar bands have day jobs and do oh, this yeah, kind of man. stuff. Well, and it's when I hear comics too, like when I hear some comics mention, you know, their job or mention whatever they do on the, on, on the side and, and struggling financially. And it's almost like we, some of us think that you need to do that. You need to, I had a comic last night actually tell me that, you know, I mentioned how much I like producing and how much. And then I started talking to two uh, independent producers that have produced some really good film and some really good stuff, uh, contributions for CBC and all this stuff. And they were talking to me about casting, potential casting. And I just started thinking, like, that's what I do for my show. Like, I'm I'm good at forming a cast or a lineup. And I've gotten really good at that. And so they mentioned a couple of roles and then I autom- right away, I was just like, Oh, this person for that role that he, they'd fit perfect. And then this person, they're just like, Oh, you're good at this. Sean, you're a young guy. You, so you're going to have four or five careers before you realize. Well, and it was just like opening my eyes to that. And I was mentioning to him about it. And this comic just said, he's like, you do know that you're allowed to 
be happy, right? Like you don't need to suffer to be a good comic. Like it's an ingredient, but it doesn't need to be the whole thing. He's like, you can be good at producing and you can host this show. You can be a good painter and you can be a good comic. Like you can do all of that if you really want to. And I, and I just never really, it's weird how you don't think of these basic concepts where you're just like, yeah, let's just try and be good at it. At it. Try to put the work in. The hardest part of being a good producer is surrounding yourself with the best possible people to do the job. Yeah. And the better you get at doing that, the better you are seen, the better you're looked mm-hmm. at. And that's that's really all it takes. That's, yeah. that's exactly my mentality is I only know I'm going to be only as good as I know I can be. The more I surround myself with great, better interviews, better hosts, yeah. better producers, and then things happen naturally because you're just putting out so much good stuff. Yeah. And you need to get really good at knowing when and knowing how to say no. I think sure. that's been like a huge thing of getting good at because it's someone, you know, being so scared of rejection and then getting better at delivering a form of rejection or just because it's quality control and it's just knowing when people are ready to do certain things and knowing like that's been a really challenging thing too. And it's tough. You're in a big pool and uh, a lot of other venues or producers are aware that they can pay less in hopes to give you an opportunity, which sucks because that induces underpaying artists. Yeah. And that's hard to say no when it's, you know, zero is worse. And there's a lot of hungry comics out Mm -hmm. there and not, you don't need to be deserving to be hungry or you don't need to be at a certain level to be hungry. Um, and hung, and no matter what hungry for, for it is a good thing. That's a good thing across the board. You need to be, but there, there can be some troubles where you have some comics, setting up road gigs with certain venues on the, and and uh, being hungry for it but not ready for it and burning that bridge for other comics because then like I've had you know even Bebenick and Pew Rob Pew and Rob Bebenick told me like they've contacted certain venues on the east coast but a comic in the past like last year set up a show there and it was a garbage heap right and that venue's like yeah we tried stand up but it didn't go well and it's like, yeah, but you don't, that venue doesn't realize that they're talking to two headlining, nationally touring headlining comics who've been to major festivals. They don't realize that they are going to get a good show. They don't know that. And so hunger is a good thing, but it's just like a little bit of uh, realization, self-realization and kind of be like, okay, I know I'm ready for this. I know I'm ready for like, and that goes a long way too. But like, the, you know, you got to be hungry for it. So. And you got to be on the path, not on the right path. You got to be on. Yeah. You never know path. what the right path. You never know what the right path no, is. None of them are the right path. But if you're, you're either on a path or you're not. Yeah, I think so. And you are. So I can't wait to come out to a Cloak and Dagger. A yeah, hangover, man. Come on out. Comedy show. I want to thank my guest, Sean Hogan for coming and telling us a story. And we're going to see future stories of the Cloak and Dagger Sunday nights at 7 p.m. We always tell our guests at home to sleep tight. Sean Hogan, what's your your greeting when you want to tell someone to have a a good sleep, good slumber? Uh, I'll say the same thing. I say the same thing that uh, the woman who I lost my virginity said to me on her way out the door. She said... 
be good to yourself. That's what she said. She, <laughs> All right, folks. <laughs> be good to yourself. 46-year-old prostitute named Dusty. I miss you, boo. Totally. <laughs> Dusty was her nickname, and we won't tell you why. Uh, sleep I, tight, Eversleepers. Sleep tight, everybody. Never Sleeps Network. This has been a Never Sleeps Network production, executive produced by Alex Ross. For more information and content, visit NeverSleepsNetwork.com. 